Let's pray. God, before we pray about some specific things about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to lift up another church. We want to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church this morning and for Chet and Terry Haney. I want to pray first for Chet as a um, husband. I, I believe he is a father as well. I just pray for his worship, Lord, that it is, first of all, fueling and equipping a man as he loves his wife, as Christ loved the church, and as he uh, tends to his children or maybe even grandchildren. I'm um, just praying that, first of all, his ministry lands there, his studies, his worship, his efforts at preaching and uh, leading your people at Highland Terrace, that, that his family gets his best. And Lord, I pray that um, he's surrounded by men uh, who hold him accountable, men that can ask him hard questions, men that he holds accountable, that they have a relationship with each other that would, would guard and protect Highland Terrace, that would uh, guard and protect the leadership, that would make for wise decisions that were made in some ways plurally if not absolutely plurally. Um, Lord, I pray for their marriage. I pray that uh, I pray for Terry, just knowing and seeing some of the challenges that, that an elder's wife faces. I just pray that you would guard her from being guarded, <laughs> that you would, would keep her perpetually available and attentive to Chet first and then the body second, that she would... Um, trust your people and trust you among your people that uh, their marriage would be rich and flourish and it would be a very public ministry. God, I want to pray too for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. We want to pray for the ministry there that you are being enjoyed, that the kingdom is being advanced, that they are making much of you, that they are equipping the saints for worship, for, um, for being salty and bright and aromatic wherever they deploy between Sundays. Dear Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for, we want to pray for one of our brothers who is going to be having a very complicated, uh, dangerous surgery this week, and pray for Gary Carroll. We entrust our brother to you and pray that you would watch over him as he goes about this procedure, uh, that you would um, give him excellent care through his physicians and doctors. Pray for Shelly and the rest of the family. Just pray for a peace that passes understanding as they undergo this, this time of great difficulty. Pray that whatever way that we can come alongside this family, I pray that we would be faithful to do that in these coming days. Lord, lastly, I uh, want to lift up these next few minutes. I don't want to be funny. I don't want to be um, all the things that I could be or not be to deal with uh, what is a very important issue. I want to be faithful to your word. I want to expose no more than your word and what is being said in these passages we go to today. And God, I pray that you would be glorified in how we spend these next few minutes. I pray too for families as they walk through what they've heard in a very, very sexually charged culture and environment and context. I pray for a God-honoring response. Um, and I'm so thankful for your word that gives us such clarity on a, uh, a difficult issue. Uh, I, we entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12.
We're looking at two passages this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17 that deal with sexual immorality and um, godlessness, and then chapter 13, verse 4, that deals more, a little more with sexual immorality and marriage. We're going to deal with all these things together because they are connected in some ways, although they're separated by a chapter and some other passages, we're going to deal with them together. What I would like to do in these next few minutes is I want to unpack what is going on in each of these passages so we have a good handle on what's being said here. And then we're going to ask some hard questions of the Hebrews preacher and of God. Why this airtime on sex stuff? And then we're going to land the plane this morning with some practical thoughts and applications. So... Let's begin with chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. See to it is not in there, but I'm carrying it over from the verse before because that's the participle that's driving this verse. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Now remember, as we pan out a little bit from where we are here in chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, that we're in the context, beginning in verse 1, with dealing with how to run the race well, how to run the faith race well. And these last few verses, last few passages, we've dealt with real practical application for what it means to run the race of faith. This passage here is dealing with the third thing that the church is to be seeing to. um, The other two things that we considered last week is that we are to be seeing to, first of all, um, let me find my notes. Yes, see to that no one forfeits grace. We discussed that last week. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. We also dealt with that last week. And then the third thing this morning that we're dedicating the entire morning to is see to it that no one, if I could summarize what's being said there, that no one is like Esau. We're going to talk about Esau more in a few minutes, but just if you want to summarize what's being said there, see to it that no one is like Esau. Now, this verb, or excuse me, we should say this verbal noun, this participle, is see to it is a plural participle, meaning that all are involved in this work. We considered that last week. All are to be involved in seeing to it that no one forfeits grace. All are to be involved in protecting the church from the root of bitterness. And all are to be involved in seeing to it that no one is like Esau. Something else that involves everyone is the see to it that no one suggests that Everyone is is involved in seeing to something that anyone and everyone has the potential to be involved in. See to it that no one, all are subject to this seeing to, and everyone is mobilized to see to everyone when it comes to sexual immorality. Now, I want to deal with sexual immorality and unholiness First, sexually immoral. This word in the Greek is pornos or pornos, which you don't have to think real hard to think about the connection there. 
It means literally, if you were to translate it directly, it means prostitute chaser. Okay, we don't have to get creative to think about what's going on there. It applies to any form of sexual immorality, not just chasing prostitutes, but any form of sexual immorality. Unholiness now, this is an unfortunate translation in the ESV. I love the ESV. But the New American Standard uses a better word here for what's going on here for unholiness because the root word there is not holiness. But the word means godlessness. It also means vile or profane. See to it that no one's sexually immoral and see to it that no one is unholy, vile, profane, or godless like Esau. This word godlessness or unholiness here that's translated means, if you want to explain it more and kind of help you make sense of it, it means not being spiritually minded. And Esau is a wonderful illustration of someone who was not spiritually minded. Now, I want to give a brief recap on Esau so we have this guy in view. If, we're going to, if the Hebrews preacher is going to refer to him, then it's something that would need to be, we would need to be, have a fresh recollection of what he did. Abraham and Sarah had a child. His name was Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, born moments before Jacob. And God promised Rebekah that these two children were going to strive against one another. God told Rebecca, the two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's a little heads up of what is about to unfold. In chapter 25 of Genesis, it says this, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, this is the story that's being referred to here in Hebrews chapter 12. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom means red. So so he liked this stew so much, apparently they called him red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose, and he went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau is a visual aid of someone who traded something very valuable for something very temporary. He traded his birthright, and there's an emphasis here, for a single meal. His appetite apparently was so ravenous for this stew. Not only did they call him red, and his spiritual vision so short-sighted that he traded his inheritance for a single meal. Let that hit you for a moment. Now, there are some indications from ancient Jewish commentaries. Jewish commentaries, they, they are a useful resource for us. They are likely what our Hebrews preachers studied in addition to the scriptures, just like I have a library full of commentaries. 
The ancient Hebrew commentaries are called Targums. And one of those Targums said this about Esau. In that day, he had committed five transgressions. This was their commentary on what's gone down over here with his birthright. In that day, he had committed five transgressions, one of which consisted in adultery with a betrothed maiden. Now, we don't know if that's absolutely true. We can't consider some Hebrew commentary as authoritative as God's word. But we can wonder if that's what the Hebrews preacher is thinking, if he's been studying those commentaries, and that's why he's referring to Esau when he's talking about sexual immorality. We can't know if Esau hooked up with a betrothed maiden. But here's some things we can know. We can know that Esau beautifully, or sadly, we should say, illustrates sexual immorality because he was driven by his appetite and had no real view of his inheritance. It beautifully illustrates what's happening with sexual immorality. He was godless and unholy in that he wasn't spiritually minded. Instead, he was soup-minded. He sadly but beautifully illustrates what's going on with sexual immorality. Whatever made him feel good for the moment, that's what he was going after. And then on the other hand, again, we don't know whether Esau was actually sexually immoral or not, but we can know and see that sexual immorality illustrates what Esau did. For he gave up lasting, lifelong blessing for a temporary bowl of soup, like giving up a wonderful marriage to the bride of your youth for a roll in the hay with a stranger or even somebody that you know. He sadly illustrates sexual immorality, and sexual immorality illustrates Esau. While they both illustrate each other, one thing that's true as well is they both illustrate apostasy. Both of them illustrate sexual, or sexual immorality and Esau's unholiness are the epitome of turning your back on God. That's what we're going to consider later in the morning. What does God have to do with sex and appetites is where we're going to go later this morning. But let's look at verse 17. Let's close out this passage and then go grab our Hebrews 13 passage. Verse 17 is referring to just what happens in the next chapter, or the two chapters later, in Genesis chapter 27, where Jacob fools Isaac into the blessing. Esau later seeks his blessing, but it's already been given. The blessing of the oldest has already been given to the youngest. The birthright and blessing were two different things. The birthright would be the stuff, dad's stuff. Here's all the stuff that you're going to get. You're going to get the family business. You're going to get most of the family stuff. Now, the blessing was different. The blessing was God's pronouncement on what your future was going to be like. And it was a very valuable thing to those folks in those days. It should be now, but it's especially valuable to them. Jacob would have sought God's face and God's will for what is the will that you have for my boys. Both would get a blessing. But the finer, richer blessing would go to the eldest. 
Blessing is God's pronouncement as to what their future will be like. And here, Jacob gets the better one. He tricks his father, Isaac, into blessing him with the eldest son's blessing. Esau finds out afterward when he strolls in with his father's favorite soup. It's interesting that father loves soup as well to the point that he's blind. He strolls in with his father's favorite soup, but he had lost out to the better blessing. And Esau's unholiness, his being driven by his appetites, his godlessness, his blindness to spiritual matters was so profound, even when he sought the better blessing, he was rejected. It was too late that he'd gone to the younger son. So to summarize these two verses, see to it, Hebrews church, that no one is like Esau, driven by your appetites, blinded to spiritual, wonderful inheritance, wonderful blessings. Now, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Marriage is to be held in honor. This word honor means precious. It also means considered rare. Though we're likely in a room full of married folk, though marriage is all around us, we should consider it honorable, precious, and treat it like it's rare. It is an honorable and important ministry. And marriage bed, this is shorthand here, this phrase, marriage bed, is shorthand for the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. A few things we can glean from this passage. First of all, it's speaking to single folk as well in saying that what takes place in a marriage bed is not for you, period, it doesn't matter how much you love one another. It doesn't matter how much how, how special your dating relationship. It doesn't matter how much you're burning with passion for one another. This is for married folk. What takes place in a marriage bed? You should honor your marriage, and then he encourages them, protect your marriage bed from defilement. Don't pollute the marriage bed. Don't let other things creep into that bed that shouldn't be there, like infidelity. Like imaginary infidelity, which according to Jesus is infidelity as well, pornography. Don't let that creep into the marriage bed because it will pollute it. It will defile it. Don't let desires or preferences that are contrary to God's design, that don't honor one another, creep into that marriage bed. Marriage is to be honored, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled and unpolluted. The marriage bed and sex is for married folk, and it should be protected from defilement. Now, some thoughts, really some questions that I've been dealing with this week. Why the specific airtime in Hebrews? Hebrews, well, I remember when we started Hebrews a few years back, we'd just been to the Redwoods as a family. And I thought, man, Hebrews is like walking through the terebinths of theological truths. 
It's like walking through this forest where you just feel so small as you see these massive truths that we know now full well are about Christ as the supreme high priest. Why in this book of a forest of massive trees of theological truth, so much or at least specific dealing with sexual immorality? Isn't sin just sin? Why wouldn't he just speak about sin in general? One person sins with money. One person sins with his words. One person sins sexually. It's just like the rest, right? Why so special a treatment here about sexual sin that gets specific coverage, and you could say even redundant coverage when he deals with it in chapter 13, verse 4? It's not embedded within some vice list like a lot of other places in our Bible. He gives specific treatment to sexual matters after he's developed this massive truth of Christ as high priest. Now, I was wondering if Hebrews is unique, and then I started thinking, man, the rest of our New Testament deals with sexual immorality all over the place, just a brief look at my, two te- at my New Testament and passages that I could recall, I found references to sex, dealing with immorality, purity, etc., sexual-type references in all of the Gospels except for John. And I may have missed something in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all deal very specifically and very graphically with sex and what's involved or what the outcome should be. Gouge out your eyes or cut off your hands eye-gouging, hand-hacking treatment. It's not just the Gospels. Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, (laughs) like nearly the whole books, dealing with sex matters. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, James, 2 Peter, Jude, and then Revelation has the letters to the churches in Revelation. It's got lots of references in the book. But the letters, two of the seven churches clearly had sexual issues going on, Pergamum and Thyatira. And then two of the others likely did, given the language involved, Sardis and Laodicea. So potentially four of the seven churches had sex issues going on. Sexual morality is a big deal. Seems like in our Bibles it gets more airtime than gluttony. Seems like it gets more airtime than greed. I'd say more airtime than pride, anger, strife. It gets a lot of airtime if we're really serious about it and really honest about it. Why? I think the only way to really answer this question is to go back to God's design for marriage and God's design for the husband and the wife. And God's designed for his movement with a people to make sense of this. The minor prophets and major prophets are a big help for me. As you're over in the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of treatment of God being married to his people. But it starts to come into focus in the major prophets, and then it's all over the place in the minor prophets. Here are a few passages. You can jot these down. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll give you a few moments. I I don't have you specifically turning to either of these. One I do want you to turn to for sure is Ezekiel chapter 16. 
I'll share a couple of other passages as you're taking your time to find that oft-visited book of Ezekiel. One is in Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is one little glimpse into the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah has another glimpse, and then we're going to take a really close look, or a closer look, in Ezekiel chapter 16. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband. Now keep in mind, this is chapter 54, which is right after chapter 53 about the suffering servant, which I don't think is any accident at all. Keep in mind, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. There's a significant development in our Bibles of God being married to his people. These references that may have been six, five, six, seven hundred years before Christ were about 800 years after the Exodus, where it's pointing back to saying that was our marriage day. Back there when I delivered you from the fiery furnace of Egypt, that's when we got married and we entered into covenant together. And I was your husband. Look at what happens here in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a more thorough development. Beginning in verse 4. And as for your birth, on the day, you could just insert Israel here. He's speaking to Israel. As for your birth, Israel, on the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. In other words, you had nobody to tend to you. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And this is love language right here. This is like the description of a marriage ceremony that's taking place here between God and an unlikely bride, a forgotten, homely, bloody, lonely bride that he raises up and calls his own, and you became mine. Now continue on in verse 9. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck. That's why men should buy a jewelry for their wives. It's right there. James Avery can send me a little, little, what do you call it when you get a little plug there? And I put a, don't do this, and I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown. You can do that on your head. If I see some of y'all walk around with crowns, I'll know the men are taking care of their wives. Thus you were adorned with fine, with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. He married her and then he treated her like a lady because he's a great husband. But let's continue. It's heartbreaking two words. You have some sense of what's in store, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore. Sexual language is introduced. It's been alluded to already as he's talked about her equipment as she's grown up. But now we start to get more specific. You played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourselves colorful shrines. And on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. Fast forward over to verse 32. I don't have the courage to read that center section in public. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men gives gifts. Men give gifts to prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all of your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. You're not even a good prostitute. Most prostitutes take money for what they do, yet you paid. You were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. He called her mine. He married her. He treated her like a lady because he's a good husband, and Israel cheated on him. Sexual imagery, very sexual imagery. The most graphic passages in our Bible I left out. Now this idea, this sexual relationship here between the betrothed or at least their infidelity is so developed. The infidelity of Israel is so developed that whole books are dedicated to their marital infidelity. The minor prophets start to get real specific It uses the phrase 12 times in our Old Testament, under every green tree, you're hooking up with somebody else. Man, just think about that imagery, every green tree. Who should that be for? That should be for a husband and wife to go enjoy a quiet place together. But yet you were whoring with other gods under every green tree. 
Jeremiah 3 verse 20 says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is such an issue. This this imagery is so developed. It's so uncomfortable to talk about. It's so developed in our Bibles that there is an entire book that's dedicated to this very issue where God called a prophet, a man named Hosea, to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Did you know that's what Hosea is about? Okay, Hosea, I know you had your eye on the girl next door. (laughs) But I want to show Israel what they're doing to me. Go find this gal downtown named Gomer. Go marry her and go try and do life with her. And together in the way she moves, she will show and you will show the Israelites what they are doing to me. Rough job being a prophet. Right? And read Hosea with that in view and it, it, it comes to, into focus. Heartbreaking imagery. So if sexual infidelity And whoring, which is used throughout the major and minor prophets, is the picture of forsaking their covenant husband. Then sex, it seems, if you want to ask the question, what is sex for other than being fruitful and multiplying and sort of setting that in motion? The fact that it's pleasurable means there are going to be a lot of babies. Is there more than that? Man, here's a good answer for you. If sexual infidelity and whoring is the picture of forsaking their covenant husband, then sexual fidelity, it seems, is the picture of blissful union with God, our husband. If Song of Solomon is any help at all, which I think it's tremendous help. Some folks think Song of Solomon is nothing more than a love poetry book between a man and a woman. Maybe Solomon and Shulamite woman. May not have been Solomon, may have been some other guy. Is that all it is? It's at least that. But I think it's so much more, and most folks believe it's so much more, showing us the ecstatic union between God and his people that's intimate, that's devoted, that's special and unique, that's committed, that's surrendered, that's tender. That's wholehearted. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This will be a familiar passage to us if you've been here these last few months. Brad preached on this before the end of the year from, preached on marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. It is a, a great reference for us. It's something that we should treat as precious and honorable and rare, even though it's not rare. Let's look at what's being said here in chapter 5, verse 31. Marriage is a picture of this union between God and his people. Look at what goes on here in this passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to God and his people. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. 
regular old garden variety marriage illustrates this union where two become one flesh. Man, you want to see the, the flip side of this. You want to see this, this reality in the negative direction. The only other passage, well, I got two other passages for you to turn to, and they're right beside each other. 1 Corinthians 6, and the last passage we'll consider this morning is in 1 Corinthians 7, so you can just have that ready. 1 Corinthians 6, dealing with the union that takes place in the sexual relationship. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know, Corinthian church... That your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. If you want to understand what sex is about, it is a Visual aid for visual for the marriage couple, married couple, and a illustrate an illustration of the union that man, I started thinking about these places where Jesus is praying for union between God and his people. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer is God or Jesus begging the Father, Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. And that we will be one with them. He's praying for this union where two become one. If you want to understand what sex is about, it's helping us make sense of the union that we are to have as God's bride with our divine husband. If marriage is to be the picture of Christ in the church, then sharing the bed, this is the flip side, Sharing the bed with another is tantamount to worshiping another God. Sharing your bed and what should take place between husband and wife there with someone other than your husband and wife is like giving yourself, devoting yourself, uniting yourself, committing yourself to another. It's like surrendering to a God other than your God. That's why it's so vile. Man, people say, ah, man, this porn thing has me down. I, you know, I, I, I know it's bad. I know I shouldn't do it. You need some motive, some strength, some truth to sort of transform you and give you a new wind in that effort. How about this? That's not what sex was designed for. It's absolutely contrary to what God designed sex for. If Esau's example is a tutor, it's being driven by your appetite is what it is, with no vision to your inheritance, no spiritual vision. It is godlessness. You want to understand what it is. It's not just a sin. It is godlessness. And remember, it beautifully illustrates apostasy. And I would argue you're on the slippery slope to apostasy if you're involved in unrepentant sexual sin. It gets so much airtime and has so much to do with illustrating the union between God and his people. Man. So what's the point the Hebrews preacher is making here in this airtime, in this specific airtime that he's giving 
sexual issues. The point that he's making in a bigger picture is running the race has tangible and practical applications. If it's just a notion, but it doesn't play out, then you're not, you're not running it. It's not even faith. It has practical applications. It's real stuff, working through real conflict with real people, like last week. Dealing with real people who are damaging and divisive, roots of bitterness, like last week. Working through real sin that's graphic and private and personal and heartbreaking and destructive in a way that will honor God and putting this in a place that honors his design and remaining faithful to our divine husband. Man, it's all connected. So just some practical thoughts. First of all, sex turns out isn't a bad thing. There are plenty of perversions. But it is a wonderful thing for the husband and the wife. It is the best wedding gift a husband and wife will ever get. Christy and I laughed years ago when we were, we'd been married five or six, seven years, and everything we'd been given when we were married was breaking. Like it had seven-year expiration date on it. And we were convinced that's where the seven-year itch comes from because everything's breaking. <laughs> Everything that you've been given at your wedding is, is ultimately perishable. But this side of your death, this is one thing that's not. This is a wedding gift that keeps on delivering. It's the best gift given to a husband and wife by God to that husband and wife. But it's so much more than just a wedding gift. It's so much more than just procreation. John Piper said this in regards to sex. He said, we were given the power to know each other sexually, and I inserted as husband and wife, because we'll be very specific. We were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it will be like to know Christ supremely. Man, just in light of that, husbands and wives, why wouldn't we want to do that often? Seriously. It's a little taste of the bliss that we will experience forevermore when we are in the presence of our Savior. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. I told you there will be some practical application here. One way to see to protecting the marriage bed. One way to see to protecting the marriage bed is in this passage. I'm just going to read the passage, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Not long. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, remember, this is coming from Paul. The same Paul that said, I choose to be single. Now, we don't know if he had been previously married and was a widower. He knew a lot about marriage, which suggests that... <laughs> He had some clue what's going on in marriage. But he says, I prefer to be single because being married kind of makes my ministry difficult. I have sort of two ministries there. He's also the same guy that later on in this passage in verse 6 says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, meaning single. 
Okay, so he starts the passage out saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Listen to what he says next. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, this thing that gets so much airtime in our New Testaments, and Bibles really in general, this thing that's dealt with over in Hebrews chapter 12, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. God has given us a wonderful strength and protection from sexual immorality in our spouse. And it's not one thing in the arsenal. It's the only thing in the arsenal, from what I can tell, is your spouse. Man, just think about that for a minute. Some of you may be struggling with sexual immorality or some or pornography or whatever it might be. The answer to your problem is sitting right next to you for the married folk. Man, that's encouraging. Okay, let's see, let's see what's going on there. The husband should give to his wife. Yeah, I want to make sure I didn't skip a verse. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. We know what that is. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Hmm. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Huh. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's going on in this passage? In verse 2, there's commitment. One woman, man, one man, woman. A husband and wife, man, your, your solution and protection from sexual immorality is that husband or that wife. And then in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. They should be characteristically available to one another. Characteristically available to one another. And I'm going to put this in there. Even if, and I should say, even because, even though you're likely on very different schedules. <laughs> I mean, I told you we're going to have some plain speech. Even though you're likely on very different schedules. What a great opportunity to think more of the other than yourself, wives. Even though your husband wants this a lot more often than you, even though your husband was sitting there elbowing you and secretly jumping for joy because of these passages are being read out loud, and you're going, oh, man. What a great opportunity to minister to a man who needs, whose needs may be more frequent than yours because you're going to help protect him. Characteristically, Available. Now, notice I didn't say absolutely available. Characterized by availability. And then in verse 4, contrary to what we may think, verse 4 says that our authorities are over the other. The husband has the authority over the wife's body, and the wife has authority over the husband's body. And then in verse 5, do not deprive one another except for what? prayer. <laughs> There's not, do not deprive one another when the other one's been a knucklehead. Wives. Do not deprive one another when the other one has been sort of difficult. 
and needy. There's no, the only caveat there is don't deprive one another for prayer. Think of all the reasons that a husband and wife or husband or wife might deprive the other. And according to this passage, you're only depriving one another for prayer. How about that? Man, that's, that ought to bring some, some real practical application right there. Do not deprive one another. Come together. The last little passage there tells us don't deprive one another. Come together so that Satan won't fool your behind. Man, people need some real practical application on how to protect their families, how to protect their marriages from the wiles of Satan who's prowling around like a roaring lion that would love to eat your lunch and bring great shame to this walking illustration of Christ in the church and God and his people. You tell me Satan wouldn't love to do that? You want some protection against that? Keep the marriage bed well used. The marriage bed should be well used. The greatest defense against defilement of the marriage bed is active enjoyment of the God-given wedding gift of sex between a man and a woman. Now, the third thing. That's the third, those two just practical thoughts. The third practical thought is seeing to it. Remember, we're going to go back to our original passage in Hebrews. See to it that no one falls a sexual immorality, or no one's unholy or godless like Esau. Seeing to it means that we reach out to one another in meaningful ways on this matter. Christy and I have been married almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in July. I compl- I'm that guy that completely forgot our last wedding anniversary. Christy came up midday or mid-morning said, happy anniversary. I was like, what? anniversary of what and I was that guy we're, we're coming up on 20 years of marriage and something that 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 has become that we've become aware of is not just a um an isolated thing is that lots of people struggle sexually in their marriages and they die in this die on these issues quietly they suffer quietly because they're embarrassed and one of the best things that will help you is to know that there's nothing new under the sun. You're not the only one that's struggling and things like that. But you need to reach out to someone that can help you. And you don't need Dr. Ruth. You can actually reach out to your family, your church family. Your church family can actually be a help in this. You don't have to make any public announcements. You don't have to send out any emails to the body. But you can reach out to people that you're close to. And likely, ideally, people that you see, hey, they're married well. I can tell their relationship between one another is that, that, that they're very happy. Let me put it that way. They're very happy with one another. Reach out to them. Don't die in this matter thinking you're the only person that's struggling in this. Some of the newlyweds, you think, man, this is just going to be amazing. And the newlyweds find out, oh, it's work. You have to kind of figure this thing out. It's good work, but it's still work. And know that you're not the only one in the world that's struggling with it. Open and honest communication and a desire for something better given what it illustrates should compel you to reach out to someone. We need the kind of love for one another and the kind of access to one another that fosters this conversation. It might not be husband and wife conversations. It might be some of you single 
single cats that are struggling with pornography. Reaching out to someone who has gone the distance in that. That God has helped find victory over that. And you need somebody to help hold you accountable. This isn't just for married folk this morning. This is for single folk as well. We need the kind of love for one another and the kind of humility with one another and the kind of honesty with one another that fosters this kind of conversation where men are teaching their wives to love their wives as Christ loved the church and where women are being taught, like Titus 2, by the older ladies how to love their husbands. Man, we're talking about real running the race application stuff right here. That's all I have for this morning. That's about as, gonna, that's about as detailed as we're going to get, and I hope that if I've crossed some lines that you'll forgive me and give me some margin. I've struggled with this for some time, that what is so often spoken of privately and so twisted and so distorted is very seldom spoken of plainly and biblically from, this, from a pulpit. So God's people can go on for years and years, never hearing, never understanding what God's design is for sex, what he had in mind, how it's best enjoyed, and whether or not it is to be enjoyed. And I want to be the guy that, or at least a guy, that is, is opening my mouth even if it's uncomfortable. But I hope that if you have some questions in regards to this morning, or even if, you've, if I've crossed some lines with you and I need to be rebuked, I'm, I'm okay with that. I want to be accessible and available. Um, Let me pray and we'll have our supper. God, I'm thankful that the word gives us clarity and gives us insight and gives us understanding to what your design is for marriage. God, I pray that you would... I should say, God, I thank you that you have given married folk something that protects us from the wiles of Satan, something that also grows our families, and something that gives us a little insight into the ecstatic experience and blissful experience, not sexual, but blissful and wonderful experience we will have with you and our Savior for eternity. God, I pray that we will be faithful to walk through this in a way that honors you and honors your design as families. I pray for couples who may be struggling quietly and secretly, confused and feeling alone. I pray that they would reach out to other couples that can help. They can reach out to maybe some counselors that can help. I pray that an outcome of this message will be that as a church that we grow in this, that we grow more faithful, that you foster a fidelity in us and an openness and an honesty between families where we can work through issues like this. I pray for someone that may have heard this morning this reality that what we've talked about this morning is for marriage. I pray for our singles and our folks that are divorced, Lord. I pray that you would give them a a peace, an overwhelming peace that they have you that they can join Paul in enjoying the simplicity of their ministry and that they have you and that you would sustain them. God, this thing that's so rampant and this culture that's so filled with distortions, 
I pray that we as the church would be a city on a hill. I pray that we would be a light, that we would be salty and bright and aromatic to those around us, enjoying and walking in sex as you've designed it. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 22 is the Lord's Supper, and it's more than that. It gives us a glimpse of what's in store. We, we celebrate this every week, and I don't know if you realize, in some ways, what we're doing every week when we take the Lord's Supper is we are celebrating like a rehearsal dinner meal. Some of you have been to a rehearsal dinner. Or most of you maybe at some point have been to something like that. Why don't you think about that as we read? And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And what he's speaking of is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is a time, a rehearsal dinner is a time for the betrothed to enjoy and anticipate what's in store at the ultimate consummation. It's a time of celebration, it's a time of anticipation, and it's a time of commitment. We do this every single week, and I want you to think about this is a meal with our groom-to-be. This will happen at the end of the age. It will happen when he returns, a marriage supper of the Lamb. He's holding off with something that we get to participate in every single week that should call us to fidelity. It should call us to fidelity sexually as well. It should be a weekly reminder, a weekly renewal, a weekly call to I want to have eyes for him only and if I'm married for her only or him only. I want to have eyes for Christ alone if I'm single or I'm a young person. Christ alone. And if I'm married, I want to have eyes for Christ first and then as a ministry to and enjoying Christ to my spouse. Man, what a weekly wonderful reminder we have. A rehearsal dinner meal. Let's distribute the elements. I want so every morning really I want to be faithful every Sunday morning um, if I'm preaching I want to be faithful in what the scripture says and this morning I didn't want to say anything more than what the scripture is saying and I hope I haven't haven't gone too far in anything or under said what should be said um, sometimes you can tell folks hey you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to do something and our kids are great examples where they go why and why help sometimes? I mean, it, sometimes a parent, you just feel like saying, because I said so. You know, but ideally, we are saying why. And when you understand why, that gives you a strength in something that you didn't realize a lot of times. And I hope this morning has been a why for some folks that have been struggling in this. Um, 
I hope it's given you some spiritual vision where you see that we have a wonderful inheritance that's not worth risking and getting on this slippery slope without some help than staying on this slippery slope unrepentant because it will eat your lunch. It's eaten many a lunch. I hope this morning was a call to fidelity, but a renewal of hope, maybe for somebody that struggled for a long time. And don't quit struggling. Don't quit going after being faithful to our husband. He's worth it. He's a good husband. He's called us his own. He said, live. And he's called us his own. And he's taking care of us like a good husband does. Let's enjoy him together right now as we take and eat. Let's take and drink. Let's continue in song. If y'all need to speak, anybody needs to speak to someone about any of this, of course I'm available. Um, I would offer up Brad and Scott uh, as well as the other elders. Small group shepherds, life group shepherds, I'm offering up you as well. I'm offering you up as well to, um, to your life groups because you may have somebody that needs to talk. And uh, church family, you should see the life group shepherds as uh, folks that are invested in your journey in your race and folks that can come alongside you. Uh, If you would like to talk um, about some counseling, uh, there are some wonderfully gifted counselors in our church. And if you're at the point where like, I need counseling and I can't bear to have somebody I'm seeing every week, um, then we can work that out too. But just, I encourage you, don't hear this and not act on this if God's shown you something. I encourage you to reach out for some, some help because I don't think the Lord lets us sort through things by ourselves because we need each other. And he's designed it that way where we need each other. So uh, it's awkward. Man, I hardly slept last night. I was tossing and turning. And uh, I felt like a, I, I told somebody this morning, I felt like a cat with a really long tail and a room full of rockers. <laughs> you know, like, oh, man. I just, a million things that came in my head over the course of the night that I could say or shouldn't say or whatever. I just, I hope that we were God honoring in the way we spent this time together. I hope we just look and say, man, if that's what the scriptures say, then let's, let's, let's believe that and let's walk in that and let's obey him. So, but I want to offer us up if you want to talk. Let's stand and I'll dismiss us with a benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all have a great day.